with Zach Servideo from Boston Speaks Up. I'm here with the sponsor, Reed. Silicon Valley Bank is a proud sponsor of Boston Speaks Up for more than 35 years. Silicon Valley Bank has helped innovative companies and their investors move bold ideas forward fast. SVB provides targeted financial services and expertise through its offices at 53 State Street in downtown Boston and in Newton and innovation centers around the world. With commercial, international, and private banking services, SVB helps address the unique needs of Boston's innovators. Learn more at svb.com. Uh, Zach's video here with Boston Speaks Up. I'm here with Dr. Emily Reichert. How are you? I'm great. Really excited to be here. Thanks for having me here. Uh, congratulations on the relatively new office. When did it open? Actually opened in December of 2017. Okay. And since then, we've filled it to the brim, as yeah. you may have noticed as you walked yeah. through today. Um, we're short on conference room space, on kitchen space, yeah. on the number of coffee cups, but we keep on going and nice. um, they, they um, are okay with sharing. That's wonderful. It's good, good news for uh, climate tech, too. Amen. Yeah. So I'm going to read just a quick summary. It's something I started doing from some good feedback from listeners, and then we'll kind of get into the conversation. Sounds good. So Dr. Emily Reichert is CEO of Greentown Labs, the largest clean technology startup incubator in North America. As the company's first employee, Reichert has spearheaded the rapid growth of Greentown Labs into a global hub for clean tech innovation attracting visitors and partners from around the world. She started her career at the international management consulting firm, Arthur D. Little, as a PhD scientist and progressed into R&D, business development, and general management roles. Prior to Greentown Labs, she was a director of business operations at the Warner Babcock Institute for Green Chemistry, where she helped grow the angel-funded startup into a sustainable contract R&D business with a mission to minimize environmental impact of chemical products. She has served as a board member or as a key advisor for a number of innovation and entrepreneurship-focused organizations, including the Northeast Clean Energy Council, Alliance for Business Leadership, Clean, Te Clean Tech, Open Northeast, Cyclotron Road, and Incubate Energy Network, and the M MIT Enterprise Forum. Wow, and I left out a bunch of stuff. <laughs> uh, super impressive. Um, really grateful to have your time. You are clearly um, busy and a sought-after person um, in the climate tech world right now. Greentown Labs is the biggest... Uh, climate tech incubator in the world. I'm uh, I'm catching myself now and saying climate tech because I said <laughs> clean tech before we even went live. So let's start right with that for yeah. listeners that are maybe um, more um, or less sort of uh, in the know mm -hmm. on on climate tech, clean tech, green tech. Where do you net out on that and why? <laughs> Well, I have to say that climate tech and clean tech have a lot of overlap and climate tech is a relatively new term that I think our industry has been embracing as we realize the urgency of doing something about climate change. And so clean tech has been around for quite a number of years. Um, I'd say the big boom in clean tech from an investment perspective goes back 2006, seven and eight, when everyone wanted to invest in something that was green, and then the recession hit and a lot of those investments went bad. Yeah. And the word clean tech, at least, not on our coast, uh, not on the East Coast, but on the West Coast, among Silicon Valley investors especially, got a bit of a bad rep. Mm -hmm. And so for several years after that, anything that was labeled clean tech uh, was, uh, you know, not going to get funded. Yeah. And so we had entrepreneurs, um, you know, when I got involved in Greentown, 2012, 13, 14, where they were figuring out other ways to talk about their business whenever they went to raise money in California. And, you know, they're entrepreneurs. They figure it out. And so that's fine. Um, I'd say on the East Coast, we never really gave up the word clean tech. Mm -hmm. And so there are very strong programs in our area, whether it be accelerator programs like the Clean Tech Open, um, whether it be uh, an incubator like Greentown Labs. We've always said we are the largest clean tech incubator um, now in North America. 
clean tech to us means doing more with less or reducing the amount of waste going into the environment. And that can be any number of different really industry sectors. Uh, it can be everything from like renewable energy, which is of course what you think about when you think about clean tech, um, energy storage, energy distribution, transmission, um, water waste, agriculture, um, mobility, transportation, energy efficiency, and then kind of platform technologies that support all that stuff like chemicals and materials and IT and apps. And so clean tech is pretty broad, mm -hmm. um, but it's in a basic sense using resources more effectively. Climate tech is really, I think, where we are today. And climate tech is thinking about how do you reduce greenhouse gas emissions? It's kind of that simple. Mm -hmm. There's a, that is okay. that is really, um, I'd say, the difference between the two. And it's not like you weren't doing that in yeah. clean tech, mm -hmm. but maybe there's a filter yeah. of things that are reducing greenhouse gas emissions being more classed under climate tech. And I think it can also be things that not only reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but also perhaps take greenhouse gas emissions out of the atmosphere. So for example, carbon capture. Uh, other things that I think would fall under climate tech include technologies that help us be more resilient to the climate change uh, that's going to happen to our environment no matter what. So climate tech is in some ways broader, um, but in other ways narrower, but it is certainly more focused on greenhouse gas emissions and how we deal directly with climate change. I love that. Um, and I can see how it could be considered narrow in some ways, but actually, yeah, I tend, I tend to agree with and see that as being a proper broad umbrella. like reducing greenhouse gas emissions as an umbrella <laughs> and everything that falls thereafter. Also and dealing yeah, with climate change. And deal and actually dealing with What's climate change. What's the technology change. that we need? Yeah. Whether it be sensors for understanding how flooding is happening yeah. so that a city can understand which neighborhoods are going to be underwater first. Um, it can be uh, technology that helps us monitor other kinds of infrastructure. Mm -hmm. You know, our, our bridges and roads as they um, withstand more and more storms, are they going to be um, cracking or breaking earlier? So there's a lot of different technology that can be used to address climate change um, as it's going to affect our environment, whether it be storms or um, the ocean coming up yeah. in our neighborhoods or, or whatever it is, um, unusual heat. Uh, there's so many different things that we just really need to understand. We need to have data so that we can plan and we can be more resilient. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the marketer in me really likes it too. The alignment between climate tech and climate change is just one-to-one. -one. Mm -hmm. So therefore, like it's it's more inherently understood. Like we're helping solve like for you know issues with the climate. Yeah. And and what is going on with you know climate change, etc. You mentioned a few things too, like back. That was actually when I started cutting my teeth in the late two thousands as a marketer and PR person in Boston. I was that wave of, of, of green tech. Mm -hmm. um, I remember one of the first companies that I worked with. So it was like two out of three, not bad. Um, we'll, talk, we'll start with the bad and then the two. <laughs> the bad was um, for a while, it was Cineva, mm -hmm. which was a, down in, um, uh, I remember the peach farms down in Georgia. They were helping create these wind, they were helping to create these solar panel farms with like, you know, at that time, everyone was competing over the most efficient vo photovoltaic. Um, so, you know, it's just still artists, you know, certainly to a large extent. Uh, but that the recession and, and sort of the uh, fallout from the recession really hurt Cineva. Um, but I got to work with them as like a young marketer. And then another company that came along, which initially was called Positive Energy, is uh, we rebranded actually out of Cambridge Innovation Center called uh, Opower. Oh, yes. Of Remember Opower? Oh, yes. And they had a nice exit to Oracle years later and yeah. had a very a sort of using a lot of behavioral science, mm -hmm. um, behavioral modeling. That I, was a really clever model. I definitely still get those um, yeah, notifications those, from energy, my utility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the way for any for folks listening, uh, Opower, they would issue home energy reports sort of uh, alongside and in tandem with your bill. And it would show your use compared to neighbors of the same type of home, and and you're more. And they would always show you that you're more energy efficient neighbors. <laughs> and then it would end with three tips on things that you could do to get closer to your energy efficiency, uh, energy efficient neighbors. And it was that simple. Yeah, 
And somehow you're never as efficient as your neighborhood. Yeah. Your neighbors are. Um, yeah. We we live in a small condo and kind of try to live our values. And yeah. Like, how can people be more efficient than we are? <laughs> yeah. Oh, wait, our boiler's 20 years old yeah, or maybe yeah, yeah. 25 years old. There you go. And once it breaks down, we will certainly replace it. But yeah. um, until we do, I guess we're just going to keep getting those, like, not smiley faces on yeah. the O-Power report. There you go, the not smiley faces. <laughs> and they had a nice, I mean, their model evolved nicely when they started out. Like, one of, like, usually one of the three recommendations would be some sort of, like, deal on something you could purchase and had some nice little sort of, I'm sure, um, business they, they based off of that. Um, Retrofiscency was the last one. Remember those guys? They came I out do. of MIT, Bennett Fisher. And, the, and those folks, and that now actually that team's at uh, Anji. Yes. Over at Anji, uh, I think a lot of them are still there. I know Mike Kaplan, who's a marketing friend of mine, is still there. Do you know Mike? I've yes, yeah, I met, met Mike, Mike. Yeah. and certainly Bennett as well. Yeah. Those great guys. Yeah. And interestingly, um, when I went to Sloan to do my MBA, retrofiscency was one of the examples that was used in early stage capital. Um, so we had to negotiate on their behalf. Oh, interesting. What, <laughs> for what their year term was that? sheet, I think it was like 2012. Because cool. I think they had gone through um, just a, maybe a year or two ago. And the professor, uh, Sherry Lossberg, mm-hmm. probably taught them and yeah. so used them as a key opportunity oh, uh, to uh, show how you could negotiate these things successfully. Interesting. Um, so, so, so let's, and I want to go back a little bit more in time before we kind of catch up to the future. So you grew up in Arizona. I did. Where in Arizona did you grow up? Tempe, Arizona, Tempe. Uh, which is where Arizona State University is. So that was a couple miles down the road. Uh, very suburban childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, everything was car based. I, I think I always kind of gravitated towards maybe checking out a part of the world that was a little bit different. And yeah. I think I found a better fit for myself out here. Um, but uh, grew up in Arizona, uh, lived there until I went to college and then was in Southern California, actually just outside of L.A. in Redlands, California. And then traveled to the uh, Midwest, uh, spent five years getting my graduate degree in chemistry, and then came out to Boston for a job and uh, stayed the last 20 years. And I think now I've lived all over the country and really feel like I'm at home in Boston. It's just the the right fit for a variety of different reasons. I love the kind of youthful energy that we have here. And I think that's because we have a flow of students Mm -hmm. and international visitors and others coming through every single year. They just bring this. Yeah, it's it's energy. It's it's excitement about learning uh, that, you know, you don't necessarily have if you're not in a. Well, a college town would have it, but we have like 50 colleges and universities, so it just permeates everything. Oh, yeah. And then I'm an outdoors person, so I love being near the ocean and the the sand dunes, and I love being an hour away from hiking in New Hampshire and Vermont. I've done all 48 4,000-footers in New Hampshire. Um, So there's 48 There are 48 over 4,000-foot peaks. And this is and as you defined and, by the Appalachian Mountain Club. Really? Mm-hmm. Is this like a big hobby of like you and your husband, like to go out hiking? That together? is how we met. Is fact. that how you met? Yes. Oh wow. We were doing a. <laughs> we were both um, signed up and did a map and compass, um, sort of orienteering workshop, where we were up in New Hampshire for a weekend, very rustic cabin, like sleeping on the floor in sleeping bags, and yeah, yeah. and I think he was really impressed with my it. bushwhacking skills. Okay. <laughs> Like a, a woman that could yeah. do that is yeah. like a woman after my heart Sweet. kind of thing. Yeah. And it was... So that's kind of how we started dating. We met each other through that. Our first date was a hike um, that turned into, well, long story short, a, a 12 or 14 hour date. And yeah, uh, yeah it was uh, just a great way to meet people. I think hey. that's something that we, you know, when you meet someone in a bar, it's it's not the same as meeting someone. On, actually, I know Doing so activity. many people yeah. who have met via hiking and yeah. found their mate that way. And yeah. in fact, we call it the Appalachian Mating Club. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Amongst so, ourselves. Yeah. And it's because you Have there are... been multiple weddings oh, that yeah. have spun out oh, yeah. of this like, club? Oh, yeah. So many friends. So many friends. <laughs> but the thing is that you are on a trail together hiking for six or seven hours. You don't have any makeup on. You're not like fancy in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. You're just you. You're just you. And you're doing something that you love. Yeah. And it's just such a wonderful pe- way to meet people. It's also how I've met kind of all my friends in Boston was getting involved in that club. Yeah. And then, you know, we don't necessarily do the club activities anymore, but we've, we have that common bond of being interested in the outdoors and nature. And so it's a great way to meet people. I highly recommend. I love that. I'll have to, I've, I've actually hiked, um, 
a little less since I've been back than I thought I would. And I, and I, and I love doing it. So you're now encouraging me to do that more. I cycle a lot. I was doing triathlons and, and did an Ironman the year before our daughter was born, which is a lot harder to train for when you have a kid. Yes. Uh, but I love just the like, same thing with like cycling, any type of activity. I've made some amazing, um, forged some great friendships with folks in the Boston innovation community, um, whether they've been investment bankers or entrepreneurs or marketers, just from like go finding group rides. Like I used to live in Somerville and I used to do the group rides out of Davis Square and just, you just, that's how you met interesting people. When you're doing something you love. Yeah. And you have that commonality from the very beginning. Yeah. And that kind of breaks down so many barriers, right? Yeah. And that's, I think, just uh, shifting a little bit to Greentown and what yeah. we do here. The commonality that binds this team and the community that we've built at Greentown is kind of the passion for the mission and doing something kind of bigger than what one can do individually. And I think that it solves so many problems when you are, when you know that the people around you, the people on your team are also motivated by the same things. It's yeah. like you have that common basis to start from. You're not um, trying to, um, you know, it's, it's, it's always you can go back to an understanding, okay, this person thinks this thing is really important just like I do. And yeah. for us, it's climate change, right? Yeah. We all feel that's important. On my team, we all feel it's incredibly important to help the entrepreneurs that are going to help us solve and address the climate change challenge. And so that binds us together in a way and serves as a baseline for everything else that we do together. And I think, you know, if I had to point to one reason that we've been successful, that would be it in terms of team and then in terms of the community overall. Just having that supportive environment where everyone's kind of aligned and on the same page, yeah. that's really the advantage of being an incubator where everyone's in the same industry, Yeah, you know, because they speak a common language. They have right. something in common right from the very beginning. And yeah. you can kind of feel that, you know, that energy. You can, like describing it for listeners, like having just gone through the multiple, now we're up on the third floor and we're on the second floor and looking out back at the, um, at the lab where we're multiple, I don't know, six, seven, eight, how many companies have space where they're building just in, in that one space in the back there and could kind of just feel the kind of natural sort of energy collaboration happening where like everyone's building sort of, these are all um, innovative solutions in complement to each other to help solve climate change and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Like, how awesome is that? Like that kind of, it kind of lifts you up a few levels. So uh, was this always the plan? Like you were, so you were employee number one, like that's crazy. Like, yeah. can you just give I, us like a snapshot of the like, kind of made my own job. Yeah. Um, so after I got to Boston, I worked at a consulting firm for a number of years, like you mentioned. Yeah. And a lot of my work was, so I was technical. I had a technical background, started in a lab, managing a couple people in the lab and basically running experiments, like understanding uh, for a large company what was going on. I remember one project we worked on was there was an HVAC system where they couldn't figure out why it was leaking. And so we came up with this way that you could put this kind of marker through the whole thing to understand where the leaks were. So it was kind of doing technical analysis in support of problem solving for large companies. And then we also worked for the government government and Department of Defense and contracts like that. And I did that for six or seven years. And I guess at some point along the way, I realized that I was making kind of an additional incremental profit for one company. Mm -hmm. And that just didn't feel satisfying. You know, when you get up in the morning and you're kind of yeah. like, yay, I'm going to go to work. Yeah. I'm helping one company make a profit. Yeah. It just really wasn't engaging. And about that time, I learned about green chemistry. And green chemistry is taking traditional chemistry and really trying to make it more environmentally friendly, both the process of making chemicals, but also the chemicals that are in our environment. So I worked on everything from carbon black that is in the inks that you print with, all the way to nail polish and the chemicals that are in that. Because what the public really doesn't know, you know especially true with well, with many consumer products, these things aren't really that well regulated. Okay. The only thing that is, is, is food and drugs. Right. So you can kind of trust what's in there has yeah. been fully tested. But when you're talking about uh, nail polish, for example, there's things in there that, well, 
I think have been identified to cause disruption. They're like endocrine disruptors, so they can cause birth defects. There's there's definitely things in our products that probably shouldn't be there. And so we would help companies get those things out of their products. Okay. And sometimes the public already knew about them. Sometimes they didn't know about them. Um, but either way, it was making products and processes more environmentally friendly. Sometimes it's driven by regulations, sometimes driven by marketing, um, but always kind of moving it in the direction of cleaner and better. So I did that for a couple of years and I was really one of the first people into that company. One of the early employees, probably the first uh, person with management experience and helped grow that from about eight people to about uh, 40 or so in two years. And that really gave me the entrepreneurship bug. And I kind of thought to myself, I wonder if I could do this leading this company and growing a company. Mm -hmm. And so that took me back to MIT Sloan to do a program called the Sloan Fellows Program, which was a year MBA for people who already had 10 years of experience or more. Okay. That was just an amazing year. It was like a sabbatical, but um, also networking on steroids, learning all kinds of really the business terminology, because that's what I didn't have. I was trained as a scientist. Mm. So they don't teach you about revenue or net profit or um, anything that you'd need to like yeah. actually get a company funded. What's yeah. a series A round of investment? What's yeah. a term sheet? None of that got to me um, through my both career experience or uh, through my scientific training. So a year program to really kind of get the language of business yeah. um, in addition to learn about what new opportunities might be was exactly what I needed. And while I was there, I networked my way to Greentown Labs, mm -hmm. which was then um, really a collection of entrepreneurs who were sharing an as-is sub-basement space in South Boston mm -hmm. over by the waterfront. Mm -hmm. And uh, the building was formerly a bakery, and it, this was 2011, 2012. Uh, the waterfront really hadn't been developed yet. Mm -hmm. uh, Buildings were going for yeah. eight to twelve dollars per square foot. I remember, yeah. And um, they, so this entrepreneur group found this space, did a two-year lease, kind of took a chance on on being together. This was a bunch of clean tech entrepreneurs, some of which had graduated from MIT, but all were building kind of clean tech-related companies. But they needed a place to do it. And I'll say, like, clean tech companies are different. Climate tech companies um, also, in that most of the time you're building a physical product. So right. you can't often do it in like class A office space because yeah. you make noise, you get dirty, yeah. um, and no one wants your smells of your soldering um, to be you know bothering them while they're typing or whatever mm -hmm. people do in normal co-working spaces. Yeah. Um, and so they needed kind of a special space, and they had this as-is space and rented it for two years. And the community had grown, though. And when I came in about a year and a half in, um, they were facing the challenge of needing a new home. Uh, because the real estate market had gone from eight or twelve dollars a square foot to fifty-four dollars a square foot yeah. um, in that two-year period, and so clearly that could not be supported by entrepreneurs kicking in a bunch of money to pay the rent, mm -hmm. which is kind of what the business originally was, is mm -hmm. more of a co-op. And so um, I helped them to forge a partnership um, with the mayor of Somerville, which seemed like the place that we could find that warehouse space. Um, at the time, we came upon the Ames Safety Envelope Company empty shell of 14 buildings um, just outside of Union Square in Somerville. And they needed to have a new life. And yeah. so um, we followed a, a business called the Artisans Asylum, which is a makerspace and a climbing gym and taking on some of these old buildings that had had this earlier purpose, but were now uh, pretty much just empty. So that was our founding in Somerville in a, in a very short time period from when I came on board in February 2013 to... Um, really September 2013, uh, we found a new building, uh, figured out how to pay for it, um, which was kind of cobbling together a bunch of different sources, including an Indiegogo campaign. Mm -hmm. um, we moved our, by that time, 25, 28 entrepreneur companies over to Somerville, did a construction project, started and finished it in seven weeks. And um, you know, we're able to get out just as the next day we would have been evicted and paying like quadruple rent every right. single day after that. And it was amazing. I'll still, I think, never forget this time period because it was so stressful, but it was also so many people came together to like help us and keep Greentown Labs 
alive and as a business. The city really helped. Um, the construction team realized we were going to get booted. Uh, you know, the entrepreneurs themselves were totally involved in helping with the move. Just and, the and physical relocating. labor of yeah. moving, right? <laughs> the physical labor in organizing yeah. themselves and packing everything up. And it just really was a communal effort. And that really put us in a good place to, to get started in Somerville. And we opened our doors September 23rd, 2013. And within 15 months, we were completely full in a space that was 30-something thousand square feet. Uh, two years later, uh, the mayor of Somerville again, uh, Joe Curtitoni, who is a fabulous supporter of Greentown Labs and has been a great partner over the years. I can't say enough good things about um, how he runs the city and his vision. Uh, he introduced us to the landlord of the building that we're in sitting in today, um, which is a auto body um, paint and repair shop originally. Well, not originally, but its most recent use. And um, it was the biggest Mako franchise in New England. But um, the owner was kind of ready to, to have the building see new life and Greentown needed to expand. And so we found a way to partner. Um, the landlord ended up putting $6 million into the project and we were able to raise the rest of what we needed and have a lot of donations. But we retrofitted it, created two new floors in a 50,000 square foot building. And uh, today... We have a campus that's now three buildings and 100,000 square feet, and oh, that wow. allows us to accommodate about 100 companies across the campus. So you've more than tripled since that initial 30, well, way more than that, but that, that first move to Somerville, you had a 30,000 yeah. square foot, which, which felt, I'm sure, huge at the it's time. Sure, we had no idea how we were going to fill that. In the first couple of days, we have pictures where everyone's kind of lined up. Um, in the middle of the space, and we didn't even have all the furniture yet. So right. it was just like well, a few people around coffee. Yeah. It was, you know, we made it in the middle. Um, yeah. And uh, it, it just like was impossible to imagine how we were going to even, you know, be able yeah. to pay the rent ultimately. Because the nice thing about real estate is typically you have this like free rent period. So yeah. you have at least some time to, yeah. to catch up. Yeah. Um, but it turned out that the entrepreneurs that uh, we worked with at Greentown Labs were. Uh, very good at creating community and growing themselves and they had a wonderful network and you know we really grew I'd say by word of mouth and then also honestly also by interns mm -hmm. um, doing a lot of good legwork and scouting local accelerator programs and and universities to identify new companies that were being spun out of those places yeah. so Greentown really grew in the early years um, a lot on the labor of Northeastern co-ops. They um, have pushed us through so many things, and we've hired a number of them. Really? It's just a great program and wonderful to have the attention of a very motivated young person for you know six months. Yeah. They can just make such a difference for your company. That's interesting. I want to double click on that for a second. Uh, a couple of thoughts come to mind. One is I was recently at MIT, the Delta Accelerator, and like talking to them about their like New York into Boston sort of pipeline and bridge. Actually, I think is kind of the way they look at it. And they were there's a lot of you know a lot of companies that are for different reasons, like need to have a presence in New York or have a presence in New York, but it's become more advantageous to be and have a big presence in Boston because of the strong tethering to academia, which you alluded to even earlier too. Like that's what I love about this. There's just tons of young people like that are optimistic and, and, um, but also like, because there's just starting their careers, like they're, um, you know, very, um, loyal sort of, you know, gritty, sort of like hardworking, um, and, and also like offer pretty good economics to companies that are trying to solve like big meaty problems, uh, that, that maybe, um, don't necessarily have like the full budgets to hire, like a bunch of senior level people. Um, so there's like that, that comes to mind, but the, I want to double click, uh, more specifically on the Northeastern co-op stuff, because I've been familiar with the co-op program since way back when I chose between Northeastern and BU and I ended up going to BU and made the best of my own internships, but have always admired and continue to, and have many friends that have gone through the co-op program. Uh, and I'm surprised actually, and maybe I'm just, this is, I'm blind to it. Uh, have you identified any other schools that have really embraced a co-op program like Northeastern or is Northeastern really the game in town? And is there more opportunity for, um, for universities to embrace that sort of program given how 
not only it's afforded Greentown great opportunities, but I imagine many of those oh, young people many. have been afforded many great opportunities from those companies. six months over at all these companies. Yes. And I can tell you in the summer, um, because a lot of universities, well, of course, if a university is out in the summer, then a lot of people come for the summer internships. Mm-hmm. And summer internships, especially, um, I think we swell by about 100 people that are all interns for all the different companies. So it's definitely interns. Um, interns drive a lot in early stage yeah. because they do have so much passion and motivation and they're just eager to learn and just kind of nothing like intern labor yeah. <laughs> um, in, a, in a very positive way. I don't know of another program that does something similar, actually, and it's really too bad that they don't because yeah. I think it's a great experience for the students. Agreed. I mean, by the time you're doing your third co-op, you've like got it nailed for you know how polished you are yeah. in interviews and how you handle yourself in a workplace. Mm-hmm. I'd say for students that are coming directly out of college and haven't had that kind of experience, there's a lot of learning just how to cope with a work environment. And and so that is not as great for um, an employer in the sense that you're spending a lot of time just helping people. Okay. You always have to put things in the calendar and, you know, you need to use this format when you're taking notes. And there's kind of some like skills that the Northeastern students come in and they, you know, especially by the second or third co-op, they know how to be an employee. Yeah. And uh, so I think it's it's valuable for them in terms of their hiring future hiring potential, but it's also really wonderful for yeah. those of us who can't pay a lot, yeah. um, but really love to work with uh, talent that is motivated and and excited about the work we do. Yeah, cool. So uh, one one thought that also is on my mind, I wanted to, and I kind of alluded to this a little bit in the pre podcast questions, but sort of the idea of sustainability, mm-hmm. but sustainability for Greentown, and I was like, I'm you know, take some leaps here and then kind of correct me where, uh, and and also just kind of would love generally you to sort of overview, like the way that, you know, some of what you learned from the MIT fellows program Mm -hmm. and have applied to Greentown's business model to be a sustainable model. I noticed like, you know, there's a circular circularity challenge recently. And then I I I found other like six month sort of acceleration programs that are in partnership with a, a big brand that benefit you know that benefits from sort of the you know being the brought to you by partner of that and, the, and thinking of Greentown as a platform and I imagine there is perhaps some uh, you know revenue and, and monetization that comes through you know Greentown sort of you know align creating co-alignment with these large organizations I'm curious like it, how big or small that is a part of, of your business model at Greentown mm-hmm. and like just describe it because I actually find in the idea of like if you build it they will come uh, to quote build, feel the dreams <laughs> doesn't um, really work <laughs> it, it's it's like it's obviously you need to have a business plan and you mm-hmm. clearly have one so I'd love to kind of scratch into that a little bit yeah, yeah. I'm happy to, to get yeah. into that so Greentown uh, business model is really one that has really two major components of revenue and then kind of some smaller um, components as well. The major one is actually um, that the companies that stay here pay membership fees. Mm -hmm. So on a monthly basis, they pay um, to rent a certain number of desks or rent a certain number of square foot in the lab. And those are kind of all in fees. Like we don't charge extra for internet or coffee or printers or anything like that. It's Mm -hmm. just one number. And so it really scales with the size of the company. Mm -hmm. If you have one person, then you're paying kind of minimum. Mm -hmm. If you have, and we have a company right now that's got like 30 or 40, um, you know, then it's probably time to move out because economics may not work for you anymore. Uh, So it's kind of necessarily helps people move through as they uh, grow. So that's about 65% of our revenue. Okay. And I think that's actually a really good thing for us because that means our startups are also our customers. And they can vote with their feet. And if we're not providing value to them, then they should leave. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, um, you know, I don't think that very few instances we've had companies, first of all, even fail. But secondly, you know, who are not getting what they need from us. So I think that that's that's kind of how Greentown is a business, is that we need to please our customer, who is also our startup and our core mission. Mm In terms of the the other big pot of uh, funding that we have, it's the corporate partnerships, as you mentioned. And Greentown has had corporate partnerships pretty much from day one. Um, They started with things like legal services uh, that could help the startups 
you know, we, we negotiated that every startup that comes through gets five uh, K pro bono services from Foley Hoag, for example, and Wolf Greenfield, who are two really um, high powered law firms in Boston. And then we also always had software. Um, mm-hmm. So SolidWorks, everyone gets it here for free. Mm-hmm. Um, and other software as well, Altium and Autodesk. So those are kind of the original yeah. corporate partnerships we had. And then we started having companies that were interested in kind of understanding trends and understanding more about how to work with startups. And so that has evolved over time to be very specific programs that we do. And I think people kind of wonder, like, why would, you know, other than funding, like, what do these companies actually give to uh, Greentown Labs or Greentown Labs members? So I think there's really two things is, of course, the direct support that they provide, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, kind of helps keep the the rents at Greentown lower for the entrepreneurs if we can subsidize with the corporate partners. And then as well, for most of these companies who are going to be building a physical product that needs to be manufactured and needs to get to scale, most of the time that's going to involve a partner. So they're often going to have to work with a GE or a Schneider Electric or a Sankoban or one of these partners Mm -hmm. who has the knowledge and expertise and also the capital and um, the equipment and all the other things that they're going to need to be able to get what is a new innovative technology to scale um, to get it to the market where it is going to be able to be broadly available. Mm -hmm. And so the corporate partners also really play that role. And that's another kind of important part of the work we do. So you mentioned the accelerator programs we run. Those really uh, started from one of our entrepreneurs saying, it sucks to work with corporate partners. They don't seem to understand what I'm saying. They take too long to make the decisions. And, you know, I don't know how we can ever get money out of them and Mm -hmm. and just being frustrated. Mm -hmm. And we've identified, this is one area, but we've identified a number of areas that companies that are Greentown companies, which means that they are building physical products in the energy or clean tech space, Um, These companies often struggle with forming these partnerships. So being able to figure out how do you work with a large corporate partner? So how do you work with Schneider Electric or GE or one of these companies in order to get your microgrid technology um, out into the market? And it's not easy, right? Because these companies are might be two or four people versus trying to work with a company that's 120,000 people. Right. Like, how do you even find the right person in yeah. that company? And sometimes you find a person, yeah. and I'm not picking on our, our partners here because they're actually very good at this, but how do you find that person that's going to be able to make a decision yeah. and is empowered to do so and has the right set of incentives? It's really hard. Oh, yeah. And so what our accelerator programs do is help us to really dig deep within the corporate partners that we work with to get a whole bunch of relationships formed. Mm -hmm. So we meet with folks and we have them engaged at the C-level, so the very senior management, the people that run the business units, and that's really where the technology needs to go. It Mm -hmm. needs to go in the business unit, so the business unit heads need Mm -hmm. to kind of sign off. And then you have the innovation and or venture people, and those folks are usually the ones that are out front scouting, Mm -hmm. but have to then sell it to the business unit in order for the technology to be uh, taken up into the corporation. Mm -hmm. So unless you're working with all of those levels, it's very, very hard to get deals done. And so over time, we've kind of learned all this. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, we form these very deep relationships where we get to know all the different levels. And that's really at some level what we're doing in a launch program. So really... Um, when our company comes up to us and says, you know, I really want to work with uh, DSM, which is a materials innovation company, you know, we can say, oh, the person you need to talk to is Peter Walters. That guy gets stuff done, mm-hmm. and he is your best entry point into that company. Mm-hmm. And let us set up a meeting with him. Mm-hmm. If we didn't work with that company in a very um, deep and immersive way, we might say, well, you know, I met with this guy once. He gave me a card. Maybe he's the right person. Yeah. You know, and then you're it's a little bit of a shot in the dark. The most, yeah. the most valuable thing that entrepreneurs have is time, time and money, mm-hmm. right? And they just need us to provide the most efficient and effective information and connections and resources that we possibly can. Yeah. And so that's one thing that we're doing with the partners. 
Um, we also see the, the, the programs that we run, the accelerators, as an opportunity to bring companies into the Boston area that maybe don't really know about Greentown Labs or don't know about the clean tech yeah. ecosystem here. And so when we do Plug an accelerator in. program, for example, a circularity challenge, these companies can come from all over the world. And yeah. so we'll work with a corporate partner who funds the program um, to develop an RFP. Basically, here's what we're looking for. Sure. So new circularity um, technologies for battery materials or plastics. And then we go out and circulate that um, through our social media challenge, um, channels and those of our partners. And we find companies, I think in a recent program, we found companies from 21 different countries mm -hmm. um, who could apply their technology to this program. We might find 100 to 200 of these. And then at that point, we work with the partner to narrow them down to five or six who then go through a six-month accelerator program. And that program is really all about bridging the gap between that giant company mm -hmm. and that little tiny company. Like, how can they work together? Yeah. So how can they speak the same language around time scales, around decision making? If a company, a large corporation takes a year to make a decision, you're going to kill that startup, yeah. right? So what we're trying to do is kind of force interaction to happen in a very structured way through mentoring and programming and setting milestones for the startups so that by the end of six months, those companies, startups and the corporates really know each other mm -hmm. at multiple levels mm -hmm. and they're able to make a decision. Yeah, And so it's kind of forcing them to be on the same time scale versus the startup, which is ready to make a decision tomorrow or yeah. even then in the next hour. Yeah, And a corporation that has multiple levels that need to sign off on any decision. If you've had all of those levels already meet with the startup, mm -hmm. the decision gets so much easier because mm -hmm. they're already bought in. They've already met the team. They're already excited about the team. And so you can get investments to happen. You can get pilot studies to happen. You can get um, licensing deals to happen, purchase orders, all these different partnership outcomes. In a six-month period, we have a 65% success rate of our accelerator programs in forming these different types of partnerships. Hmm. So we're very proud of that. We've run seven of them now. And actually, we just launched one today, which is around offshore wind. Or Actually, we didn't launch it. We announced it. Uh, where we're going to be looking all over the world for marine technology that is going to help understand the environment around the turbines. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, we just don't know enough today. Uh, there are migrating animals, there are fisheries, and there are some technologies that are out there, but they really aren't ideal for really understanding the entire marine environment. So we're going to be doing a global search with our partner Vineyard Wind, which is putting up the first utility scale offshore wind farm in the United States um, off the coast of Massachusetts. Okay. And uh, we're going to work together to find those technologies and then work towards commercializing them together. Amazing. A uh, couple thoughts and sort of questions come to mind with regards to the community that you're developing mm -hmm. and around certainly like as you were just describing around like these now seven accelerators and in general like what you're looking to provide for your your tenants your 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 members the companies that are part of Greentown is there like a like a digital platform component to it like you there's a lot of like IP you're starting to develop mm -hmm. like where and, boy I wish yeah, we could yeah, say we were I yeah, wish I could say we were yeah, that sophisticated yeah <laughs> um, I think a lot of what or, we do is is kind of built into how yeah. we do it at this point. another let me let me put it like let me give it an example so like underscore bc mm -hmm. they have the core community mm -hmm. and they've recently kind of leaned into that community and just a light sort of sort of um, digital platform where everyone that's a part of the community has a profile and you can communicate with each other so like i'm, I'm more mean like is there like a, a digital means through which green town mm -hmm. as as an entry point kind of facilitate can facilitate conversation but also have like key um, you know, success um, tips or whatnot for like how to deal with certain levels of certain businesses and, and how to approach certain people, what criteria or boxes to check before doing X, Y, and Z. Like I'm just kind of riffing a little bit, but it just it seems to me that that yeah, so something. a lot of that information is actually on our blog. Yeah. So we've pretty much published, uh, certainly around the corporate partnerships and how to do them, um, kind of a series of articles on you know, lessons learned and things that you should be thinking about. We also have kind of ongoing education, like training yeah. that is happening. Every time we do one of these programs, we have a whole bunch of different workshops. Yeah. Um, and those are open to anyone that's in our community. 
And so if you're at the point where you're thinking about a corporate partnership, you can just pop on in. And there's usually four startups or, or three startups plus two corporate partners who are saying, you know, here's what we learned. It was good or it was not good or, you know, just kind of sharing their like hands-on experience. Yeah. So we do it that way. In terms of facilitating electronic communication, um, you know, like we, like many businesses, have Slack. Yeah, uh, yeah. So that is one way that our community connects to itself. And you know, people do put up questions all the time about, you know, everything from I need yeah. this screw of this size, you know, X point Y, you know, <laughs> like number yeah. two inch, I don't know, yeah. um, all the way to, you know, looking for a particular employee, like, yeah. you know, trying to build your team. Um, but there's just kind of an endless stream of, of sharing that yeah. happens among the, that community. And then we have um, kind of more formal platform that's mainly us messaging out things that are going on. Because on every any given day, there's probably three, four you know, yeah. events or it could be some kind of training, um, you know, like a lunch and learn, office hours, you know, something where there's yeah. experts on site. And so just getting that information out to the community yeah. and then... Kind of feeding Makes back. Sense. Okay, what was useful uh, is kind of the platform we use cool. for that. The Slack, Slack's interesting. Um, I was hoping you maybe would say yes. I mean, Slack's a great platform to use for that. I've seen organizations have such valuable knowledge being shared on Slack channels that they'll literally make some Slack channels open for subscription mm -hmm. for folks outside their walls. Yeah. I mean, so there's just there's there's probably simple ways too that over time I'm sure those um, certain Slack channels may even provide new revenue opportunities. Um, so. <laughs> ahead of us <laughs> yeah I, I, i'm a dreamer yeah but no, i'm a doer good. too hey <laughs> i'm gonna do a podcast we're almost 40 episodes in um, so let's talk about the next five to ten years uh i have this so speaking of dreaming i have this idea of of greentown ha having or you know having created and, and, and still iterating on a model that can manifest in physical spaces mm -hmm. certainly all over the country and hopefully over the world is that the vision you have? Uh, but like, tell me about the vision and and how um, how it. Uh, you, it's really interesting to hear because I was like, I had that kind of coming in, like, oh, how does Greentown like uh, sort of manifest in other communities that aren't just Massachusetts, which is certainly a great place for it to to start and be and exist and thrive right now. Sort of, could you walk us through? what you're thinking for the future and what your sort of more aspirational goals are? Mm -hmm. So I answer that question in a couple different ways. And one thing to know is um, as early as almost a year ago now, our board of directors decided that we were going to have a dual mission going forward. So our mission number one is to support the entrepreneurs that are working in the clean tech sector at Greentown Labs and support them to get their technology out into the world. So that's always going to be our first mission. Mm -hmm. But given what in really in the fall of 2018, the IPCC had reported out and talked about what we need to do in the next 12 years, um, our board really decided that we needed to step it up in terms of thinking about what we could do in of, to have a bigger impact on climate. And specifically, we have some levers around that, right? We support companies that could be reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And so I think over time, you'll probably see us tending more towards companies that are very squarely in more the climate tech side versus the more general clean tech side. And it's not going to happen overnight, but it's kind of maximizing how the companies we support around that mission area. Secondly, um, how we interact with the corporate partners we engage with. So we have wonderful relationships, deep relationships with many, many companies. And I think what we've noticed over time is these companies at the C-level, at the CEO level, mm -hmm. are out there saying big goals. You know, we're going to go net zero by 2050, or we're going to do this, or we're going to do that. We're going to be fully sustainable. But then when we work with the folks at the innovation level, we don't necessarily see that they're seeking the innovation that's going to get them there. And, you know, I don't think this is specific to any particular company, but there seems to be a lack of alignment a lot of the time between of what the C-suite is saying and how people are actually incentivized to do their jobs. And so I think that that's another area that Greentown can help move the conversation forward to make sure that as we're connecting across all these different levels, that uh, companies are kind of 
putting their money where their mouth is. And the way that they do that is through bringing new innovation into their companies. And we are um, certainly able to help them to do that. So finding the innovation for them, but finding the innovation around addressing specific goals that they've set. So I think that's the direction that we move to have Greentown Labs be more impactful around climate action. As for us, um, we really look at this as we are a solutions provider. We're not out there saying, climate change is bad or climate change is a problem. Like we already know that. Yeah. What we can do is help provide the solutions. And that's kind of how we think about it, how, what our role is. So when we look out to the next three to five years, there's a variety of different things that we can do to have a larger impact, including the, the two kind of threads that I shared, um, but also thinking about our impact geographically and where does it make sense um, for us in terms of where we can support other entrepreneurs, um, where we can bring together other uh, thought leaders, um, whether they be corporate partners or civic leaders who are attacking this challenge and really interested in the solutions. Yeah. Um, I think that's kind of where you'll find us going mm-hmm. next. And over the next couple of years, I think we will expand nationally. Um, the international thing is a little bit harder. Yeah. I don't know that I found the place mm-hmm. um, that makes sense for us to expand to, mm-hmm. but I'm open to, to pitches. And mm-hmm. um, you know, I've heard good things about various ecosystems. But I think that probably Australia, the national. That's my vote. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I think that it would probably be welcomed at this point in time. I think um, so. Yeah. Been, given what they've been through. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if you have, have family there, they're all okay. Um, but yeah. I think we like to yeah. think about this in terms of kind of where can we have the most impact sure. um, to address you know, climate through providing the solutions that are going to get to scale and actually you know, make yeah. a difference. So. You know, it may make sense to do it kind of more regionally, but also I think we'd look at the middle of the country in addition to the coast yeah. because we're not going to solve climate change just on the coast. Yeah, uh, we got to have everyone on board uh, on this train, and I think that given um, I had the opportunity to be in Iowa right before the caucuses and mm-hmm. hearing the candidates reflect that. Um, there is a, a strong knowledge of what's going on in terms of climate change in the middle of the country with the flooding that's been happening in Iowa, for example. I know several years earlier, um, there was Hurricane Harvey in Houston, which just really was a catalyst for a lot of people realizing this could affect my livelihood. Mm-hmm. And I am realizing that this is real and, and it's not just kind of a, a one-off thing, but uh, thousand-year event um, that is happening seemingly over and over again. So I think that opportunities like that, uh, where there's also entrepreneurs, you know, could be really interesting to us. And I think you'll see us making an announcement relative to uh, the middle of the country sometime in the next few weeks or months. Great. Looking forward to uh, Please keep me posted. Um, you, we hadn't touched on this yet, so I do want to bring up there's um, state and federal sort of legislative bodies, um, groups that you've um, been an advisor to, sort of, is there any particular legislation or things happening at the state or federal level that you think are worth bringing up while you have folks' ears right now? Mm -hmm. So a couple things, and and I can talk from a, a of state level, I think, because, of course, the national picture isn't bright at this point in time. Um, I do think that having no national leadership or federal leadership on climate um, and on clean tech, on energy, has meant that a lot of states and other organizations have really stepped up. Mm-hmm. In fact, I feel like actually right after the election, yeah. there were a lot of organizations, I think, even bi-coastal that had never talked to each other before, that were suddenly partnering to come together to, to write letters to Congress about programs that they were afraid that were going to be cut. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, I think what's happened is actually galvanized it's a great silver local lining for that, action. Yeah. And, you know, you've seen um, states, you know, I'd say well, California has always been out front on these issues. Massachusetts has traditionally been out front. Um, New York has really upped its game, but I mean, the entire kind of East Coast, um, Maryland, uh, Vermont, Connecticut, Maine more recently, 
they all have plans um, or goals that have changed or are really, um, you know, been updated, you know, within the last couple of years in general. And I think that, again, reflects people's increasing knowledge that climate change is a thing and it's not going anywhere and we need to do something about it. And the public knows this at this right. point. So, you know, I'd point to uh, a lot of action um, happening in New York as very exciting. They've really kind of jumped out ahead. Um, I'd say from the Northeast perspective uh, with different legislation mm -hmm. had really an equivalent of a Green New Deal um, not in the sense that it was originally proposed, but um, that was how it was kind of labeled, but really just kind of soup to nuts looking at how they can move forward big on renewable energy, on buildings and, and efficiency, and a whole bunch of different other elements as well. So I definitely watch them. More close to home, um, I think that we have heard from our governor um, as of the state of the state, state of the Commonwealth um, earlier in this year, that um, we are now headed for net zero greenhouse gas emissions uh, by 2050, which I think is a very admirable goal. And the things that we need to do to get there would include um, big offshore wind. Uh, yeah. You know, most people probably don't realize that right now, 50% of our electricity comes from gas. So burning gas, that is, that is New England. Um, if anyone is interested in understanding our energy mix, you can download this little app. It's called ISO to go. And you can see at any point in time where our energy is coming from. And so uh, we really need more renewable energy to come onto the grid, both, uh, both from the perspective of offshore wind, but also hydro coming down from Canada. Mm -hmm. And that is going to help us move forward because we, you know, we're kind of at the end of pipelines. We don't really have a lot of ways to generate energy in Massachusetts. Yes, we can do some solar. We can do some onshore wind, although for some reason we hate that in Massachusetts. I've never quite figured out why. New York has tons of it. Yeah. Um, it's a bigger state, I guess. It sounds like there's a, that bigger offshore wind in Massachusetts that's coming. Is that just in the right spot where it didn't aggravate enough people? Exactly. <laughs> it's far enough offshore where? that people don't have to look at it. And, um, you know, it, we didn't, I mean, when the first round of offshore wind came to mass, I think we didn't have the technology maybe to have it as far offshore. Sure. And so okay. people could see it and they weren't happy about that. And, and well, there was a lot of complicated political things mm -hmm. that I'm sure, I'm yeah. sure I don't even fully understand, yeah. but I think that now we're ready for it. I mean, the, the administration is very on board, has gone to the federal government to advocate for it uh, because we're all waiting on this particular permit um, from the Bureau of Ocean Management. Uh, to be able to to get that project kicked off, that first one, which would be really the beginning of the offshore wind revolution, I would mm -hmm. say, that's going to happen off the northeast coast. And then I think we'll continue down um, to the mid-Atlantic states as well. There's lots of states that have already um, you know, put out procurements for wind resources um, and or are planning to. So I think that's very exciting um, in terms of meeting that net zero goal. But I think we have a lot of other things that we need to focus on as well. So transportation, um, kind of a hot topic in the yeah. legislature this year. There's the TCI, which I think is, uh, that's the Transportation and Climate Initiative. Um, the governor has really been um, vociferous in uh, pushing that forward. And I think that's great. It's a framework that brings together a bunch of New England states and mid-Atlantic states uh, to reduce carbon emissions from transportation. And that kind of agreement is really needed because if one one state does it, then you have higher prices in that state and people just go over the border mm. and go get gas or whatever it is in the next state. And so you really have to do it as a network. Yeah. And we did that successfully, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago with Reggie, which is um, the regional um, greenhouse gas um, treaty type thing uh, that, again, combined all the New England states and some of the mid-Atlantic states uh, to reduce the amount of emissions coming out of our electric sector. And that basically, you know, is partly responsible for all the coal plants going away in New England. We only have one left. It's in New Hampshire, and it doesn't run very often, but okay. it's still there. But for the most part, we really reduced emissions uh, because of that uh, kind of agreement. So we're trying to do that for transportation. And then the other thing would be buildings. Um, we live in a lot of really old buildings yeah. and they aren't terribly efficient. And we've done a lot of kind of low hanging fruit around energy efficiency. 
um, around replacing yeah. light bulbs, but there's now there's kind of I like utilize more. mass saves when I bought yes, my house. Exactly. It's a fantastic program. So, I'm sure it can get even better, but it yeah, certainly so, helps. So, so that's kind of the we've we've hit a lot of that low hanging fruit. Yeah. And What's you know, next? we've really actually yeah. seen, you know, our electricity use go down over time. It's actually yeah. quite impressive. Uh, it's amazing what can happen if next? you change the light bulbs in the house and insulate and, and all that, but then you still if you're still burning oil. Right. Forget, you know, it's yeah. it's all right, it's a little it's a little bit less of a, a problem that is still compounded yeah. in aggregates. And that's maybe one of the next bigger challenges is yeah, so so many of us have yeah. those oil tanks in our basement. Yeah. You know, we need a major program to replace all of those. Mm -hmm. um, and we gotta commit to something like that. Yeah. Um, I think the gas infrastructure is something that um, you know is getting more and more controversial at this point. Uh, but it's right now it's kind of the the energy source we have until we bring the uh, the offshore wind and the hydro in which mm -hmm. probably is not till mid-decade mm -hmm. so you know that's something that i think will evolve over time although we are already seeing like in places like brookline and and possibly cambridge and somerville that they are banning new gas hookups which is pretty interesting uh, mm. surprising in fact but you know, if that's what cities and towns want to do, um, then it sends a message, yeah. right? It sends a good message. It may be difficult, maybe with the, uh, the lack of alternatives. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, but I think, yeah, it sends a good message. Yeah. I think things are changing very fast. And, you know, that's good from a climate perspective. I think it's going to be, we also have to remember that there's a lot of people who work in these industries. Yeah. And we have to have a plan for them. Yeah. And that's, you know, something I worry about. I think that, you know, what happened to the coal industry, none of the people working in the coal industry, maybe with the exception of the, some of the leaders who were, you know, doing nefarious things, you know, that's just where they grew up, mm -hmm. right? That's just the job they had because it was in their neighborhood. Mm -hmm. None of those people did anything wrong. Yeah. And our country really didn't address that fact that coal was going away and mm -hmm. is going away. And mm -hmm. then all these people kind of are stuck without an option. Yeah. You know, I think if we're moving away from fossil fuels entirely, which is kind of the direction, you know, depending on who wins this election, you know, we could be at least taking a claim that we're going to do sure. that. We got to have a plan yeah. for all these people. And that actually really concerns me that I don't hear enough talk about that. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people that are going to be affected by this as well. So, you know, they need to be retrained to do renewable energy jobs or other construction jobs or things that are going to kind of move us forward and the new economy we're building. And I think that's a distinct possibility, but it needs to be planned and, and thoughtfully done. Yeah. Well said. And hopefully um, the right person wins the election and that group of advisors to the, uh, to, to the white house is put together. Hopefully uh, Dr. Emily Reichert's on the list. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll be allowed. I'm not sure how my uh, husband would figure about it. <laughs> yeah. Think about a move to DC, but um, only a short flight, though. You know, maybe it's a little <laughs> there when you need to be there. Ah, um, yes, but it generates a lot of carbon emissions. That is true. <laughs> ah, that is true. That is um, the worst part of my personal footprint. Yeah, is the flying. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, so that's actually as we're running up against time. The last thing I wanted to ask you about is your travels around the globe so sort of like a two-part question one is where's the most amazing place and if you can't only say one you want to say a couple of times the most amazing place you've traveled with your husband mm -hmm. and also i'm curious what's on your list of places to go and potentially is there one on your list that's like you're concerned that it may not be here mm -hmm. in a few decades um yeah. so sort of two-part question favorite place you've been and anywhere you want to try to get to because you're not sure it's going to be there forever well i feel very lucky um and i think i can answer both questions with one place and that is um, that i traveled to greenland mm -hmm. in uh, 2000 i think that was 2009 maybe it was 2007 anyway um and had the opportunity to um really well we went in september um yeah. and so the Greenland is, is basically covered with ice, as I think everyone who's listening to this probably knows. And at the tips of these glaciers, kind of where they run into the water, um, you get these really interesting effects around icebergs. Uh, so it's kind of like the, the, the big glacier is calving all the time, all these little pieces. And what happens just like you know anything else that floats in the water and ice floats in the water is they kind of beach themselves. 
um, on the shore. So you'd be walking along the shoreline and there's all of these like larger than me, like three or four or five times the size of me, um, icebergs Mm. that are just kind of sitting there and they all are different shaped and they have, you know, they look like individual pieces of sculpture Mm -hmm. that you're kind of walking along the beach. And Greenland is not very populated. It's like 60,000 people for the entire, you know, landmass. And there's only people on the very edges and, and, you know, you get around by helicopters and those are really the bus um, little grannies have like their shopping bags uh, right next to wow. them on the, the helicopter bus because you're flying kind of end of um, you literally have to hop around right and, you, you kind of where these islands yeah. are where the people actually live um, but kind of being around those uh, really the, the icebergs and so there's no noise because it's so few people and just hearing the sound of icebergs icebergs have this little tiny like drip 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 sound they're always kind of dripping and tinkling because Mm -hmm. they're melting they're in the sun and so they kind of have a very unique it's very unique experience to kind of be wandering within these giant pieces of ice sculpture and hearing them kind of slowly melting so that was a just a really memorable uh, experience of being in greenland wow I think that um, that's definitely a place that I'm glad that I went to um, 10 years ago. And, um, you know, I am a little bit afraid to to go back and see how much it's changed maybe in another 10 years. Right. Because you're like sort of experiencing the almost the pulse of the planet Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. Wow. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Emily, this has been amazing. And <laughs> My pleasure. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to sharing this with the community. Uh, cheers, Boston. <laughs> cheers, Boston. <laughs>